Welcome to This Week in Church History. We're grateful you joined us for a wide-ranging conversation about events in the history of the church. Here are our hosts, Dr. Michael McMullen and John Mark Yates. Welcome to This Week in Church History. This is our final episode of this year's Black History Month special focus, and we're going to be talking about Charles Octavius Booth. Booth lived from 1845 to 1924 and was one of the most important voices in framing theology and uh, the conversation that goes along with uh, understanding the growth of the African-American church in America. Joining with me for our conversation today is my friend, Dr. Walter Strickland. Uh, Dr. Strickland is Assistant Professor of Systematic and Contextual Theology and Associate Vice President of Diversity at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he has recently released uh, a new edition of Booth's very famous uh, Plain Theology volume. Uh, And so, Dr. Strickland, thank you for joining us. Thanks uh, for coming and helping us understand a little bit more of the impact uh, of Charles Octavius Booth. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me today. Yeah. So, uh, Dr. Strickland, talk to us a little bit about who Booth is and why our listeners should know uh, about him and his contributions to uh, American Christianity. Uh, Sure thing. So, Charles Octavius Booth, he is this wonderful, uh, in my view, window into this unexplored horizon in the American church. Um, He was born in Mobile County, Alabama. Uh, as a legal property of Nathaniel Howard, which kind of gives us an idea of the time in which he was born. He was born, in, as you already said, in 1845. And this is the wonderful thing about Booth, is that he was very bright. Mm-hmm. And everyone knew this kind of from the, from the beginning. And uh, there were some um, some teachers who boarded or stayed on the plantation where uh, he was growing up, and they identified his just intellect. And then they actually risked their own freedom to teach him how to read uh, on the etchings of a tin plate that had letters on them. So help, so, just an interrupt real quick, help our, our readers kind of understand yeah. why is it such a big deal that somebody is is even having to risk to teach someone to read? Why why was that a, a, a concern at all? For sure. Like in the antebellum period, which is just prior to the, uh, the, the Civil War, it was in 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 the law, the legal code uh, by states, and also I think it was by state. I don't think it was quite federal. It might have been, but anyhow, it was illegal all throughout the country for a black person to teach a black person to read, or for a white person to teach a black person how to read. Mm. And so these these um, these teachers who are white saw his promise, and then they said, you know what, we're going to do the right thing and uh, dignify him by helping him learn how to read. And so he did learn how to read, and he was very, very well to the point where he was uh, sold to a different uh, owner who was uh, in legal practice. And so essentially he was, um, you know, turned out to be an office boy in a law office. Hmm. And um, what happened was is that during that period of time, the legal code was, was based upon uh, logic found in Scripture, primarily in the, um, if you think about the book of Romans, that, that was a, a central piece of literature that was read in law schools for, for this decade. And so because of that tightly knit sort of logic from the law to scripture, uh, Booth was reading the scriptures as a part of his job. He was just around all this literature, uh, in particular the Bible. 
And then he uh, begins to read the scripture and he comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ (laughs) just by the testimony of the Bible. And so, so this, this is a a great quote from him. Uh, This is in 19 or 1860, rather. He says, um, in 1860, he reached an experience of grace, which strengthened him so as to fix him on the side of God's people. And that's what he said happened in 1860. And then in 1866, he was baptized. Um, and then, uh, you know, soon, you know, as, as time passed, he was, uh, freed. And then as a, as a freeman, not only, not, not only did he work for the Freedmen's Bureau as an educator, he, uh, eventually, but he, um, established two churches today. We would call that church planting. Right. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the second church that he planted was, uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and if that sounds like it's familiar, uh, because um, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, that's the church where Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, really established the Montgomery bus boycott, which was the final spark, in my view, that catalyzed the, the civil rights movement right. from uh, the mid fifties into the mid the mid late sixties. And so, um, prior to doing that, he was uh, an educator. He um, was on the board of uh, you know a, a bunch of pastors in Alabama who established Selma University, and so he was on the board of that school, and then he became its second president um, over the span of about two years. And then what he ended up doing is he actually partnered with Alabama Southern Baptist to say, you know, what, there's a growing uh, need for theological education for pastors mm-hmm. uh, and other sort of lay leaders uh, throughout the the rural part of the state. So can we partner together financially uh, to help me reach them and educate them? So they did. And what he found out is that there needed to be an orderly account of the faith that common people, and for him, these plain people were sharecroppers, right. uh, those who are bivocational in that way, could, could read, understand the faith, and then be able to communicate it to the parishioners and others around them. And so uh, that theological handbook that he created was called Plain Theology for Plain People. That was published in 1890, had one smaller printing, but had then gone into uh, virtual obscurity. Mm. And it was, a, it was a big feat for me to actually find the book, uh, a copy of it. And, and in fact, the first time I read it was on a Word document. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, and so there was words missing. There was, I mean, it was crazy. But as I read it, I, I was a PhD uh, candidate and I was just looking for um, some theologians who were. You know, just very keen during the reconstruction, deconstruction, and you know era, and um, and I was like, and someone told me, hey, have you read uh, Charles Octavius Booth's Plain Theology for Plain People? I said nope, but it took me months to get my hands on it. Mm. I was just going to read like the introduction of the book. I ended up sit, spending the rest of my day sitting down in a chair reading it cover to cover. Wow, wow! And I said, the world has to know about him because he is on the same sort of should be regarded on the same plane as many of the greats that we uh, consider in American hi- uh, Christian history, but no one even knows his name. And so at wow. that point, I said, if, if there's anything I can do to get him out there um, as a faithful witness to uh, Christianity, I'm going to try to do that. So was plain theology uh, for, for plain people, is it a systematic? Is it just kind of telling the story of theology? How, how would our listeners uh, better understand how uh, deep or uh, even some of the areas that this volume actually engages? 
Great question. And so, yeah, this this is definitely a, uh, a systematic theology. And then for those who are familiar with what that is, I mean, it's organized under the topics of questions that we ask the Bible. Okay, what is humanity? What is the character of God? What is salvation? And so th- these are the chapter titles, mm. uh, or these are the subjects of the chapters in the book. And so, wow. uh, and then he goes through and talks about the Bible. And then he talks about the church. And so, um, much like we would see in, uh, you know, a Wayne Grudem systematic theology, we would see uh, in the theology for the church, which we use in Southern Baptist life a lot. Uh, you, we would see this in, you know, uh, Christian theology, which is um, uh, Erickson's systematic theology. And uh, so it's a, it's that same sort of um, same sort of pattern of organization. However, uh, this book is not the three or four inches thick that you would uh, see for a typical ideology. <laughs> it's about, I would, I would say it's about 140 pages. Wow. Um, and because it was aimed at uh, the, the, the sharecropping audience, uh, it's not as technical, although it actually is pretty rigorous. I was surprised uh, after I read the title and the, the audience that it was that sort of in-depth, but it's not going to be so... Uh, in depth and getting into all the theological squabbles historically mm-hmm. that, that you're going to get lost in it. And so uh, it's it, it actually, I mean, in my view, it's the most scripture rich treatment of systematic theology I've ever read. Um, just big blocks of scripture. And he expounds upon what the scripture means within this doctrine of the faith. And I really do think that it's very, very valuable. And, and I've had churches around the country use it as a, um, a, in a, in a sort of book study environment, because it's, it's, it, it traverses that, uh, wonderful, like gap in the theological sort of systematic theology literature where it's not too long and it's not terribly hard to understand, but the prose are just beautiful. Man, that's, that's amazing. So as, as Booth is putting this together, what are some of the cultural difficulties that that he's engaging even while he's trying to summarize theology for his church and for uh, even people beyond the context of his church to grow in their faith. Uh, what are some of the things that he's facing that are helping drive uh, his passion for uh, engaging more people with the gospel and a solid teaching of the Word of God? For sure. I, I think that his, well, his um, first chapter is uh, the being and character of God. And if, if you're if you're thinking about this in the context he was writing, I mean, he was talking to the first generation who was freed from slavery, in the first generation born free, and then they were still dealing with things like uh, convict leasing and things like this that were pretty bad in in the in the South. And so, um, you know, a, a big question that African American Christians had to grapple with was, uh, uh, you know, the question that we now call the question of theodicy, mm-hmm. um, the, the problem of evil we would say as well, you know, and so, you know, is there a God, if there is one, which, you know, statistically African-Americans on the whole have answered that question with a, just a yes. So the matter is not, is he here, but what is he like? And so if God does exist and there's, and he is good and loving, but all this evil exists, he's either unable to fix the problem of evil or he's okay with it. And so, so Booth is really, you know, working through you know, the being of God and really his character uh, to demonstrate to his audience that there is a God who is good, who is the same God who delivered his people from Egypt, 
but at the same time, you know, there, there, there's a process and timing that goes along with all of that. So that's a driving question. Mm. Um, but another driving question that we have to, uh, you know, uh, engage, especially during this time and even today, is um, a lot of the history of African Americans in this country has been trying to raise the question: Are are Black people human? Right. And so that's that's the second chapter on anthropology. You know, it's just you know a single word as a title: man. What is man? And I really appreciate that he, uh, you know, doesn't quite sort of like, you know, dive right into the, the issue of like, you know, as we would say today, like racialization or something like that. He just says, this is who image bearers are. And African-Americans are included in that number. Mm. And so he describes, you know, who God has made humanity. And then with that in mind, he's saying, you know, this is the is the is the uh, being that African Americans belong to that are made in God's image, and so those are some driving questions for sure that were that were in his mind as he's talking about this. But then you also have to consider the the, the question of salvation. Right. Um. You know, in, in most systematic theologies, that's a that's a question that's answered. You know, well down the path. But this is chapter number three for him because you know, and he and he has this wonderful already not yet tension, although he doesn't use that language that's very popular today, uh, it's there because, you know, we, those who are in Christ have experienced the foretaste of this sort of uh, full redemptive reality. So our souls have been restored to the Father, but that doesn't mean that we're going to be taken out of the circumstance where evil is, uh, you know, not around us any longer. Mm. That's to come. And so he's looking at salvation, both uh, in a temporal sense, but also eschatologically, which is just looking towards the end times and saying, well, God in that time is going to free us from all the, the ravages of sin. But we have to begin with that process with, you know, uh, God restoring us to our rightful relationship with, with him, and then therefore being capable of many those relationships with others, and then looking ahead to the future where like all of this will be made right. That's so powerful to, to even think how pastorally he's trying to to lead his people and uh and to think through just some of those pressing questions we all have but we're definitely poignant uh for the African American community in the south uh during this uh, reconstruction period now when you got a hold of Booth's volume um and you wrote you know, your introduction uh, to this to try to help contextualize uh, Booth just a little bit more. What were some of the things that you just kind of learned overall about uh, how this volume kind of operated and, uh, and and kind of what it shows us even today? Yeah, so this this is this is actually continued to grow on me as far as me understanding the significance of uh, Charles Octavius Booth, and I don't want to get too far afield. From Booth himself, but I but I'm going to jump uh, to a, a, a contemporary conversation, but then look back and show how he sort of destroys an assumption. Okay. And so if we look at, if we look at the contemporary sort of theological landscape, especially amongst African Americans, um, and especially in <clears throat> more academic environments, uh, it's almost the assumption that uh, a, a man by the name of James Cone is the paradigm of what it means to be African American and a theologian. Mm-hmm. And for me, I would say he is, you know, somebody who's done that primarily in the academy. And uh, I would even say uh, divorced from the concerns of the local church. He got swept up into the uh, 
the, the questions that were being asked uh, in, the, in, the, in the ivory towers as opposed to looking at the church and doing theology. And so what, what I think Booth does is that he actually allows us to see that there has historically been uh, tethered to the church a Christian theological voice that is orthodox. Mm. And so, and so for, for me, the question that I asked myself, you know, after I graduated from, you know, uh, undergrad and then a master of divinity, master of theology, and I was trying to answer the questions. So where, where are, you know, have African-Americans been uh, Orthodox Christian? Uh, but the contemporary examples who had done the lion's share of the publication had been those who are in the sort of lineage of James Cone. Mm. And I have a lot of questions about theological formulation that are uh, somewhat concerning. I do resonate with some of the concerns he had, but the way he went about answering those questions, you know, uh, a lot of times I critique very heavily. Right. But what I'm trying to say is that, you know, Charles Octavius Booth is a better example historically of what an African-American Christian and theologian is like. And what I'm trying to do here with Booth is say, you know what, in the same way that plain theology for plain people was not available, they're actually, and I'm actually finding more and more uh, faithful, uh, historically orthodox witnesses to uh, Christ who are African-American, who are also um, just in obscurity. Mm. And so, uh, so I, I guess what I'm saying is that I actually, because I, I was still, so even after I found a person like James Cone, I still felt uh, you know, a little bit homeless, theologically speaking, uh, as far as amongst African-Americans. But now that I found Charles Octavius Booth and I'm tracing his lineage and I'm uh, writing a book right now uh, that's going to actually do that work. Um, and then also putting together a reader that's going to have about 165 sources uh, that's going to even help explain his uh, sort of theological tra- trajectory more. I'm, I'm, it's, it's actually been a very nice sort of um uh for me emotionally mm-hmm. <laughs> spiritually uh but but also it's it's been one to say you know what his voice uh booth's voice and those who follow him are actually open to being conversant and welcoming the larger christian family into this dialogue as opposed to being segmented off to itself because it's not so defined by quote-unquote blackness or something like that right and, and that is where we really can, you know, as we look historically through all of these different periods by elevating the voices, right, that are there, that exist and allowing us to read them helps us have a better understanding of the faithfulness of uh, God's people, the faithfulness of the black church uh, historically, uh, the faithfulness of uh, those like Booth who are seeking to honor God despite overwhelming circumstances. Oh, for sure. I mean, because the, the, uh, the situation that they're riding in uh, required a level of faithfulness that was just astounding. And, and if you look at, you know, those who were uh, following Christ and sort of, uh, and, and, and then being faithful in their, uh, in their testimony to the gospel, even prior to uh, the uh, prior to emancipation, I mean, the, the amount of trust they had to have in God and, 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 in, and in this timing. Mm. I mean, that's not a prosperity gospel by any means, you know, to say that, you know, God, God is at work. We might not always understand why and when, but we, we know this to be true, that there's a God who loves us and he won't leave us here forever. And even mm-hmm. if that forever 
you know, stretches into the eschaton because many of those slaves that weren't freed, they died slaves, but they had, right. the, they had a hope with, uh, in the sweet by and by because they had a savior who rose from the dead. Wow. That is a great space to even just stop right here and, uh, and just leave that for our listeners. And with an encouragement that they ought to purchase plain theology for plain people by Charles Octavius Booth and read it themselves. Uh, and it's available on Amazon and in Kindle and paperback. I, I know that we carry it at our bookstore the Sword of the Trial here uh, on the campus of uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological uh, Seminary. I, I think for some of the pastors uh, in the audience uh, who who listen, you can also buy it through Logos uh, and uh, download it to your uh, your device and to your library to be able to consult and to be able to use uh, as well. Dr. Strickland, uh, I mean, you, you're talking about some of the things that that you're doing uh, for the future and uh, trying to to tell the story. Uh, a, a little bit more. Is there anything that you think our listeners should uh, kind of be left with uh, as an encouragement from Booth? Yeah, you know, uh, I was really encouraged that Booth was a bridge builder uh, during a time when, you know, race relations were uh, just at a very difficult place. He was consistent with his understanding of who his family was. He was mm. primarily identified by the fact that he was a follower of Christ. And then he looked to partner with others who are like-minded, despite their backgrounds, uh, you know, as far as uh, racially, ethnically speaking, because he understood his primary identity. And so as we are looking around our nation today, that is in need of a, a witness to Christ, especially one that is so countercultural as to be multi-ethnic, uh, I think that as we look to, to partner with each other, to find the areas where the gospel must be applied, where there's just wounds from sinfulness. Uh, if we, you know, if we follow Booth's example, I think we would see that the testimony of Jesus Christ would continue to go forward with power. What a great thought. I look forward to seeing more uh, from you, Dr. Strickland, in the future as you highlight uh, even more voices of faithfulness uh, in the past um, and help us be able to understand how vast uh, a stream, how wide God's mercy and grace is for all people in, in all places. Listeners, thank you for joining us uh, this week in for this episode of This Week in Church History, and we will see you next week.